this morning comes from John 20, starting at verse 1. It can be found on page 1087 on the Bibles in front of you or on your devices at home. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He stole the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in there, in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go and said to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Nathan, if I haven't met you, and I can't tell you how much of a joy it is to see this place packed. I love Easter Sunday, and it's, it's better than a good morning, actually. It's a great morning, isn't it? Because Christ is risen from the dead. Just bear with me. We've got something to arrange. All will be revealed. I wonder, are you a morning person? A morning person. I've got three boys, uh, one who's not yet old enough to read a clock, a little bit like Stu and, and his daughter Stevie, so my son is a morning person, and he's currently still adjusting to the end of daylight savings, which is lovely. Uh, he came in and woke us up at 4 a.m. one morning this week, 
which was great. And so I think by default, that makes me a morning person. Unwittingly, I should add. But what about you? If you've ever been here with us for one of our Christmas morning services, uh, particularly at 10 a.m., I think, Bruce has a tradition uh, that he likes us to run with, whereby we give out a prize to the person that got up the earliest in the morning, on Christmas morning. And you know, normally it goes to a bleary-eyed mom or dad who's been wrenched out of bed at 3.30 in the morning to open Christmas presents. But I figured, given that it's Easter Sunday, why not try and, and balance things out a little? So this morning I'm asking, who got up the latest this morning? Who got up the latest? I reckon we can do this, all right? I want to see hands up who was still asleep at 8.30 this morning. Surely there's more than that. 8.30, keep your hand up. If you were still asleep at 8.45, at 9 o'clock, who was still asleep? There's some at the back. What about 9.15? Still, still asleep? Wow, 9.30. 9.15. 9.30. Oh, there is one right there. Well done, young man. Congratulations. We have a winner. Now... If you think this egg is for you, you'd be mistaken. <laughs> this is your egg. <laughs> because you've had your prize already. You've got to sleep in. Unlike me, I got up at 5.30. So this egg is for me. <laughs> I think I like this tradition. You know, it's interesting. You don't hear much about mourning people in the Bible. And yet, we've got one in our passage this morning. Mary Magdalene has to be a morning person. We're told in the very first verse that it was early on the first day of the week while it was still dark, right? And this is actually a detail that all four of the Gospels draw our attention to. Matthew's Gospel said it was dawn. Mark and Luke tell us that it was very early. John adds in there that it was still dark. So whatever else you might want to say about Easter Sunday, this is an early morning story, an early morning story. It's taking place in the dark, at the crack of dawn, with people who've kind of just rolled out of bed. Now, I've never really thought about this fact in particular very much, but as I was reflecting on it this week, it got me thinking about the two things that are essential for waking up, at least for me. Now, it's, it's not a persistent toddler, not like Stu, although that does work very well, it worked well this morning, but on those days where I need to get up before the kids, I need my alarm clock, and I do have an old school alarm clock, and I need my lamp, my alarm clock and my lamp. And these two, these are actually from my bedside table, I actually got the alarm clock so I didn't have to use my phone as my alarm, that doesn't always work, but... The two of them kind of work together, actually. I need both of them in operation because the alarm will it'll get your attention, won't it? It'll wake you up, but you might be like me. If it's just the alarm going off, it's, it's too easy to kind of just turn it off, roll over and go back to sleep. But the moment the lamp goes on, it's game over, right? It's game over. You are getting up. There's no way of going back to sleep. So I kind of need both. I need the sound of the alarm and I need the light of the lamp in order to wake up. I wonder how it works for you. The more I thought about it this week, the more I'm convinced 
that what happened on that Easter Sunday, this early morning story, that it's actually got the potential to impact us in the same way that an alarm or a lamp might impact us. See, the resurrection of Jesus has the power to wake us up to a new reality, a reality that offers to transform everything. So the alarm clock, as these early morning events kind of unfold in John chapter 20, one of the things you probably notice is just how much alarm there is in this passage. When Mary, the morning person, arrives at the tomb while it was still dark, she's fully expecting to find it undisturbed and untouched, and yet it's not. It wasn't. It was open. Even more than that, she was certainly expecting to find Jesus' body in there, only it wasn't. It was gone. So understandably, she is alarmed and she assumes the worst. Someone's moved the body. Could well have been grave robbers, actually, making, looking to make a quick buck. Because you see, Jesus hadn't been just chucked in a random ditch somewhere. He had been buried in a rich man's tomb, a guy called Joseph of Arimathea, it would have been a very well-known spot. So for someone to be buried in that tomb, like it, it totally would have been a target for thieves. In her alarm, what does Mary do? Well, she seeks out two of Jesus' closest disciples, Peter and John, and, and it's, it's really interesting, her alarm becomes their alarm, like both literally and figuratively. It's still very early in the morning. Most likely, she actually has to go and, and, and wake Peter and John up. So she actually has to be their alarm, as it were. And then, as she shares the alarming news with them, they take off to, to the empty tomb to visit it and find out what happened. Now, unlike Mary, Mary stayed outside. When Peter and John arrived, they actually go straight in to find out what was going on within the tomb, and they, of course, discovered that it is empty. It's empty apart from Jesus' grave clothes. As we read the passage, I don't know if that kind of struck you as funny. I think it's funny that, that John draws our attention to it so much. He's obsessed with the linen. He mentions it a few times. But I think the reason is because the scene that they find at the empty tomb is not at all what you'd expect if it had been disturbed by grave robbers. I mean, what thief in their right mind who would take the risk of, of breaking into this heavily guarded tomb, high-profile place, right, lots of attention, who would take the risk of doing that and then also take the time and the effort that was required to carefully unwrap the body before they left? It'd be like a carjacker who kind of hurriedly is hot-wiring the Mercedes-Benz, but before zooming off, they just decide, you know what, I'm going to take the flat-packed bookcase out of the boot and, and, and I'm going to use a little Allen key to put it together on the side of the road and then I'm going to drive off. It's like, that's not how robbers roll, is it? And yet, Jesus' grave clothes were left behind. And, and they're not kind of strewn about as if the body had been hurriedly unwrapped. They're actually, John tells us, neatly arranged. As if the, the body had somehow simply vanished. And, and it's in that moment, we're told, Peter and John, they see the scene and they believe. 
They believed what was previously unthinkable, what was previously unfathomable, and what was really against their every expectation. I mean, it was just two days prior to this where where both of them had seen Jesus beaten to within an inch of his life, and then they'd watched as he was nailed to a cross and and hung there for hours until he died. They'd, They'd actually seen that take place, and they assumed that it meant that his death meant defeat which was a reasonable assumption to make. But friends, on this early morning, just like an alarm going off, the echo of that empty tomb was actually announcing the exact opposite. Jesus was victorious, right? He'd been vindicated. He'd risen from the dead, just like he said he would, and so his claims in that moment were authenticated. Everything he'd said about himself. Death had tried to swallow him, but death got swallowed up instead. Once and for all, Jesus actually put death to death. Death's reign had been overthrown, its grip had been loosened, and its power nullified. And then from that moment, from that Sunday morning onwards, the echo of the empty tomb has continued to... to reverberate throughout the ages, even to this very day. In fact, that's the sound that brings us all here this morning. Death's been defeated. It's been defeated. Death has been defeated. Now, it's virtually impossible to overstate the magnitude of these verses here in John chapter 20, but I love the way that that C.S. Lewis, the Christian author, puts it when he says this, Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. Everything is different. You know, when your alarm goes off in the morning... It's a bit like an invitation to start the new day. Well, in the same way, the echo of the empty tomb invites us to start a new day, to step into a new reality, right? Like a world where where death no longer rules, a world where grief and sorrow and pain, they no longer have the final word. And so, friends, it's worth us asking ourselves, have I woken up to this new reality? To the reality of the resurrection? Because, you know, there's always that temptation when your alarm's going off in the morning to just hit the snooze button and roll over, go back to sleep. I actually love the snooze button. You might be like me. I'm a bit weird. Sometimes I'll set my alarm too early, just so that I have the, the pleasure of pushing the snooze button and feeling like I'm cheating. <laughs> friends, whatever you do, don't hit snooze on the resurrection. Like, don't hear the alarm going off, but then decide to just roll over and keep sleeping. Come awake. Come awake. Today of all days, right, the echo of the empty tomb is ringing loud and clear across our world Come awake and start the new day. Jesus has risen from the dead. As Lewis says, everything is different because he has done so. 
I wonder if that's true for you though. Like you might actually suspect that the resurrection is a historical reality and I mean the weight of evidence certainly attests to that fact but are you any different? Is your life any different because of it? You know the reason why the lamp is so important to waking up? Well, it's because of the way that the light really forces your eyes to open. You know that feeling? I'm sure you've had it before when you've been in a deep sleep, room is dark, it's early in the morning, the light goes on and you can't see at the start, can you? You kind of got to squint as your eyes adjust to the light as it comes on in the room. It's actually quite similar, I think, to the change we see taking place in Mary through John chapter 20. As she hears the echo of the empty tomb, she's the first one to see it, open and empty, and yet she doesn't quite get what's happened right away. Even when she comes face to face with the risen Jesus, right, she's not looking for him. She doesn't recognize him until he addresses her by name. It's not until that moment that she comes to see things clearly, like like her eyes have finally adjusted to the light. And then just like Peter and John were told, she believes. She believes. The unthinkable, the unfathomable has actually happened. Jesus lives. And I wonder if you've had a moment like that in your life before, or maybe several moments where it's kind of like the lights come on. Maybe there are moments connected to your relationship with God. Coming to realize the truth about Him, the truth about what He's done, and what it means for you. What I love about Mary's response is the change Jesus' resurrection brings about in her. She's transformed by it, actually. You know, she, we, when we first see her, she's, she's, she's grief-stricken, she's confused, She's worried, she's bewildered, she's alarmed. And yet by the end, she's filled with joy, isn't she? And relief. She's brimming with excitement and she's, she's bursting to share the incredible news with the rest of the disciples. Like in the, in, the, in the space of just a few moments, we see she goes complete 180. And you know, so too it is with us. Like switching on a lamp in a darkened room. It's actually by the light of Jesus' resurrection that we can now see everything clearly. As Lewis said, everything is now different, like going from dark to light. And that's because Jesus' resurrection, even though it was the very first in the whole history of the universe, it's not the last. It won't be the last. And his rising is actually the promise of our own rising. You see, by defeating death's hold over him, Jesus offers to defeat death's hold over you and over, over me. He didn't just die on our behalf, he actually rose on our behalf as well. Do you know that? And so to all those who put their faith and trust in him, to everyone who's willing to, to follow him as their shepherd and king, He doesn't just offer God's forgiveness. He offers God's eternal life, a place in, in the coming kingdom where there's not going to be any more death, no more crying, no more mourning. 
So friends, we make a terrible mistake when we confine what happened on that, e- that first Easter Sunday just to the past, as if it's a curious historical oddity. You know, how interesting. We also make a mistake when we leave it all the way in the future, like it's just this thing way off that'll happen sometime eventually, you know? Because Jesus' resurrection is so monumental. It, it's, so, it's so paradox shifting that it really should be changing and transforming us now. 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon, legend. He called it possessing the risen life. I love that, possessing the risen life. Notice it's in the present tense. Resurrection is not just for, for Easter Sunday each year. It's, it's not just a back then thing, right? It actually touches on right now. It's a present reality. And, and it doesn't just promise to shape the life to come. It, it promises to, to shape the life you're living right now. There is a big difference, quite a big difference, actually, between knowing of the resurrection and actually living out the resurrection. There's a big difference between those things, right? Living the risen life, as Spurgeon would put it. For instance, if death is not the end, it's not the final word, then the way we think about time is dramatically reshaped because there really is no such thing as running out of time if eternity is in your picture. And the reality of resurrection also reshapes our priorities. I mean, what's the most important thing in life? Well, it can't be our, our stuff, right? Because Jesus doesn't promise to resurrect our bank accounts. He's going to resurrect people. And so in light of the resurrection, then that makes relationships the most important thing in life. None more so than your relationship with the only one who has the power to bring you back to life. How is your relationship with him? Perhaps most profoundly of all, the resurrection reshapes the way we think about the future. Because you see, living the risen life means we actually get to live with hope now. The echo of the empty tomb doesn't just wake us up, it actually lights the way ahead. It, it, it shows us what is to come and it offers us the certain hope that death's not going to be your end. So however difficult life might get right now, whatever kind of pain you might be having to endure, whatever kind of losses you might have to face, hope founded on the resurrection reminds us that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. My grandfather passed away a few years ago and I actually got to take his funeral standing right here in this very spot. And I remember getting the chance to sit with him in the weeks before he passed. He'd been suffering for a long time and his final years were particularly hard on him. But, but those last conversations I got to share they weren't weighed down by the pain he was in or by the suffering that he'd gone through. His words were actually filled with hope, hope in what was to come. He knew he didn't have long left. He actually asked me to take his funeral and and we talked about what he wanted for it. And as I've been reflecting on those, those final conversations with him, 
in light of today's passage, it's actually only just struck me that, that he had all the same qualities that we see Mary has when she comes to understand the reality of the resurrection. I remember us reading together Jesus' famous words from earlier in John's Gospel. I am the resurrection and the life, he said. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. As we spoke, just like Mary, there was, there was great relief in his voice. I remember there was this edge of kind of joyful excitement about what was in store. And there was also just this overwhelming desire for everyone who would be at his funeral, right? Everyone he loves, everyone he knows, for them to hear the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. Remember leading into me and saying, give them both barrels, Nat. He would have liked today's sermon, I think. You see, just like Mary, my grandfather's life had been transformed by Jesus' resurrection. The light had come on. He'd been living the risen life, and now he is living that life right beside his Lord. Friends, Easter Sunday is an early morning story. Echo of the empty tomb is the wake-up call for a weary world. And the question for all of us this morning is, are you awake to that reality? Are you living the risen life today?